Folks, will you please put me in first place so I feel better? Pacifica Radio's KPFK in Los Angeles. This is your broadcast, as heard on 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, 91.7 FM KYAQ on the Oregon Central Coast, and coast to coast and around the globe on KPFK.org, on the Stitcher app, on the TuneIn app, on the iTunes Loud and clear on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, Radio or Not, Radio Free Brooklyn, and Radio Sputnik, five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Welcome back to another thrilling, action-packed adventure of the Bradcast. We will be speaking in a little bit with David Roberts. We haven't talked with, we haven't talked with David for years, uh, Desi Doyen. Has it really he, been yeah, years? No, it has been years. Uh, he used to be over at uh, Grist. We used to call him Dr. Grist because his Twitter handle was drgrist. Which now, looks like Dr. Grist. It looks so like Dr. Obviously. Grist, right? Now he's over at Vox. So he's changed his Twitter handle. Now he's Dr. Vox. Uh, we haven't talked to him for years. Yeah, it has been years because, as you remember, he quit for a while. He dropped out of, of blogging. Uh, and he's a great blogger, by the way. One of my, one of my favorites uh, when it comes to the environment. And now he's not a scientist, right? No, no. He is but just really, really yeah. good at taking the science, making it accessible and explaining it to people in a way that they can understand. And it's also really funny at the same time. Well, because he also understands the politics behind yes, all the of politics this. And the policy, the politics and the policy. And I think that's one of the reasons why he took a year off of blogging, which, oh, man, I could use that. Can I get a year off? I think everybody could use All that. All right. Uh, he took a year because because uh, I think the uh, the silly, stupid, dumb fight about uh, you know climate change and oh, is it actually happening? Uh, it was so stupid and so wearing, and and it is. It's just a stupid, dumb fight. Uh, that said, we try to not only cover that stupid, dumb fight on this show so you can understand how stupid and dumb and, frankly, dangerous it is, but that you can also use that as a prism to evaluate the candidates who are now running for office, whether it's uh, President 2016 or anything else. And to that end, Hillary Clinton has now come out with uh, what she says is at least the first part, the first stage of her climate action plan, her, quote, vision for renewable power, I guess was the first step. Uh, she released her plan on Sunday. She spoke in uh, Des Moines, Iowa on, uh, on Monday about her plan to add uh, some 500 million, half a billion solar panels, panels here in this country by 2021. We will talk about that, and we will talk about what she did not say in that plan with David Roberts in a little bit. 
Um, also, uh, Bernie Sanders, well, we were talking last week about Bernie Sanders uh, at, uh, at Netroots Nation, where he was interrupted. Both he and Democratic candidate Martin O'Malley were interrupted by protesters from the Black Lives Matter movement. And, and we had the leader of that movement, or at least the leader of that protest, Tia Oso, on this show last week, explaining why she did what she did. And it was, I loved it. I personally loved it because, well, you know what? I love democracy. I think democracy is fantastic. Uh, I love it when people don't disagree. And to me, democracy is much more than, you know, one team against the other, one opposing force against another opposing force, as we see in the stupid unending debate between Republicans and Democrats over ridiculous stuff. Here you had sort of an inter-party battle when you had these uh, protesters from the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, you know, a progressive movement, who were actually protesting progressive candidates like Martin O'Malley, like Bernie Sanders, at a progressive conference in Phoenix, at the Netroots Nation conference in Phoenix. And, and that's like the, the biggest progressive conference that there is such as we have those things in this country. You know, when it comes to uh, right-wing wingnut conferences, CPAC and the Family Values Summit, we have those every 10 minutes. And C-SPAN covers them wall-to-wall, as well as uh, many of the other cable news outlets and news outlets. But do you know what? The Netroots Nation, what? Who is? What? Never heard of it. So finally, it got a little bit of news for the Netroots Nation, and it got a little bit of news for the Democratic candidates, this, I guess, intra-party fight, if you want to view it that way. But it also succeeded in uh, forcing Bernie Sanders to speak more about the issues that were of importance to the Black Lives Matters movement. In the subsequent days after that protest, uh, Bernie Sanders spoke very specifically about systemic racism. Now, a lot of people were critical of the protest because, after all, they're going after Bernie Sanders, who has been fantastic, in truth, on civil rights issues for decades, going back 50 years. I mean, the guy marched with Martin Luther King, for crying out loud. So to attack him, this ticked off a lot of progressives. But, you know, to me, I looked at it and thought, you know what, this is a fantastic way to get their issue up front to get, uh, you know, to get, to get people to pay attention. I mean, that's apparently that's what you have to do to get anybody to pay attention, to get anybody in the corporate media to pay attention uh, to the issues that progressives care about and to the debate. And there is one between progressives on this and so many other issues. And to that extent, it worked. Progressives got some press uh, and the issue about uh, systemic uh, racism versus economic policies to address the problems of, uh, of racism in our country. Uh, that made its way onto the media, onto the big stage, onto Chuck Todd's Meet the Press, where he actually bothered to ask, well, A, bothered to have Bernie Sanders on in the first place. <laughs> which is no easy feat, and then bothered to ask him about those protests and about the Black Lives Matters movement. But I want to play, uh, I want to play a clip that you had uh, sort of a reaction last week at Netroots Nation mm -hmm. uh, in a confrontation with the Black Lives Matters protest. I didn't protest. have a confrontation. What I had was I was there to speak about immigration reform, mm -hmm. and some people started disrupting the meeting. And the issue that they raised 
was in fact a very important issue about Black Lives Matter, about Sandra Bland, about black people getting yanked out of, in this case of Sandra Bland, getting yanked out of an right. automobile, thrown to the ground, and ending up dead three days later because of a minor traffic violation. So this is not a, you know, this is issues, which is a very important issue, an issue of concern that I strongly share. Well, I guess it, there were some people felt that you were being too dismissive of the protesters. No, I'm not dismissive. I've been involved in the civil rights movement all of my life. And I believe that we have to deal with this issue of institutional racism. But this is what I also believe. And speaking to the SCLC last night, right. this is what I quoted. Martin Luther King, when he died, when he was assassinated, understood and was working on a poor people's march. We have to end institutional racism, but we have to deal with the reality that 50 percent of young black kids are unemployed, that we have massive right. poverty in the America, in our country, and we have an un unsustainable level of income and wealth inequality. The criticism that's come to you at this, though, is that your answer is always economic injustice no. and that um, many African-American activists believe, no, 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 no. You've got to deal with race. Racism is a separate, institutional racism is a separate problem from economic injustice. They are parallel problems. They are absolutely correct. But as Martin Luther King Jr. told us, we mm -hmm. have to address both. We have to rid this country of racism. What we saw in Charleston, South Carolina, a few weeks ago, a guy motivated by hate groups who goes out and kills black people because they're black. Sandra Brand being yanked out of a car, dying three days later for what? Yep. For minor traffic violation. But my view is that we have got to deal with the fact that the middle class of this country is disappearing, that we have millions of people working for wages that are much too low, impacts everybody, right. impacts the African-American community even more. Those are issues that do have to be dealt with just at the same time as we deal with institutional racism. Good for him. That was Bernie Sanders on Meet the Press with Chuck Todd over the weekend. Uh, Bernie Sanders, you may have heard of him. He's running for president. He's rarely on Meet the Press. As a matter of fact, the week that he announced he was running for president, uh, Chuck Todd did not even mention his name on Meet the Press that week. Uh, absolutely unbelievable. So we've had a, uh, a lively debate. We've had people debating over at bradblog.com in the comments section uh, about this issue and about whether it was appropriate, uh, you know, the way the protest went off at Netroots Nation. I have argued that it has been, and I think the fact that Bernie Sanders was on Meet the Press and got to talk about it for, I think he was on for about uh, seven or eight minutes, uh, at least the interview was seven or eight minutes. I, I, the fact that, you know, that conversation took place on our network news, I think that's a victory. So that's just where I stand on it. You may feel differently about it. If you do, you can let me know. My email address is bradcast at bradblog.com, or you can find me always on the Twitters. I am the Bradblog on Twitter and the Bradblog over on Facebook. All right, uh, before we get to our uh, break here, uh, speaking of Bernie Sanders, a just released CNN USA Today Gallup poll finds Bernie Sanders outpolling all of the GOP's major candidates. Though he's pretty much tied with Jeb Bush. Uh, so here's how it uh, stacks up. Uh, Zaid uh, Jelani reports over at Alternate that uh, this poll, according to this poll, has Sanders beating Bush 48 to 47 percent. Uh, that's nationally, so make of it what you will. We don't have national elections in this country, but he's outpolling Jeb Bush 48 to 47. He's outpolling Scott Walker 48 to 42. 
in a head-to-head matchup. If they were running for president against each other and the election were held today, Bernie Sanders would win at least the popular vote by six points. How about Donald Trump? How about Donald Trump, the Republican Party's standard bearer, the Republican Party's front runner at this point? Donald Trump. Bernie Sanders destroys Donald Trump 59 percent to 38 percent. So, you know, for all of those who say Sanders can't win. Oh, really? Really? Now, for all of those who say Sanders can't beat uh, Hillary Clinton, well, maybe they got a point there. Although the polls continue to tighten for Bernie Sanders uh, in the places that matter, like Iowa, like New Hampshire, in those early primary states. So, you know what, people? Please don't give up on democracy. Democracy matters. Keep fighting for it. Keep fighting for whoever you think would be the best uh, person to be elected, whether it's for president or dog catcher. This is not a contest. You don't win a prize if you vote for the person who ends up winning. Speaking of, um, well, actually, one more point here on uh, on Bernie Sanders. Uh, He is uh, the only candidate from either side, as Zayed Jelani points out, according to this new Gallup poll. He is the only candidate who now has a net favorable rating. Everyone else is more unpopular than they are popular, except for Bernie Sanders. He's more popular than unpopular. Okay, and now I know you've all been waiting. Donald Trump, yes. Donald Trump is now beating his rivals in national polls the, uh, by huge margins, growing margins, at least. The aforementioned uh, CNN poll we mentioned now he has him uh, outpolling Jeb Bush by three points. He's uh, Trump's at 18 percent. Jeb Bush is at 15 percent nationally. Scott Walker coming in third at 10 percent. So uh, Trump is outpolling Scott Walker by 10 percent nationally. In uh, in state polling, Trump is also now leading in New Hampshire, according to the NBC Marist poll. He is not just winning; he is destroying the competition. Twenty-one uh, percent uh, is or uh, support uh, Donald Trump in New Hampshire. Fourteen percent for his nearest competitor, Jeb Bush. Uh, unbelievable. In Iowa, uh, Trump is also making headway. Everyone thought Scott Walker was going to win there. Bush is not really trying to compete, so he says in uh, in Iowa. Scott Walker had been the front runner. Not anymore. Now it's Trump. 17% for Trump, 19% for Scott Walker, and Bush way back at 12%. So the race is on. Democracy is on. Time Magazine points out, by the way, from that same CNN poll, that uh, 52%, 52% of Republicans want to see Trump continue his run. They don't want him out. Remember all that talk about how, oh, he's so unpopular. Nobody likes him in the Republican Party. Nonsense. Just as we said on this show from the day that he jumped in the race. 52% want him to stay in and 42% of Republicans that currently back a different candidate also want Trump to remain in the field. All right, finally, Donald Trump has surged to 28% support in another poll, Economist, uh, the Economist YouGov poll of the 2016 Republican presidential field. That is double his closest competitor. 
Jeb Bush checks in at only 14% in the YouGov poll, 28% to Donald Trump. And then there's uh, Wisconsin Governor Scott Walker at 13%. Donald Trump is destroying the rest of the field in the Republican Party. Donald Trump is the Republican Party. As soon as the Republican Party and the corporate media finally wake up and realize that, they can start planning for GOP nominee Donald Trump. A quick break, and we're back with David Roberts, uh, David Roberts and Hillary Clinton's speech on climate. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your broadcast. <laughs> Hey, this is Brad. Do you enjoy your non-corporatized, commercial-free Bradcast? Yeah, me too. But we need your help to stay that way. Please consider supporting the investigative blogging, broadcasting, and muckraking that we do here on the Bradcast and the Green News Report and bradblog.com with a donation. It's easy. Stop by bradblog.com donate and drop a few dollars in the tip jar. You can make a one-time contribution or an automatic monthly donation of any amount you like. It's easy. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you'll help me and Desi stay on the air to continue our troublemaking and muckraking without the corporate influence of anyone. Got it? Thanks. Stop by bradblog.com donate to help us out today. back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. According to The Guardian today, Barack Obama ran for president promising to save the planet. Hillary Clinton is promising to help people save money on their electricity bills. In the first big reveal of her climate change policy, Clinton said she would install half a billion new solar panels by the end of her first term in the White House. Half a billion. That's 500 million. That's a lot of panels. And generate enough renewable energy to power every home in the country 10 years after her inauguration. Here's a little bit from uh, what she had to say on climate today in Des Moines, Iowa. So on day one as president, I will set two ambitious national goals for renewable energy. First, we need to have more than half a billion solar panels installed across the country by the end of my first term. Second, we'll set a 10-year goal of generating enough renewable energy to power every single home in America. Not some homes, not most homes, every home in America. I refuse to turn my back on what is one of the greatest threats and greatest opportunities America faces. I refuse to let those who are deniers, who disagree with what we need to do, to rip away all the progress we've made and leave our country exposed to the most severe consequences of climate change. America needs to lead this fight, not go MIA. America does need to lead, but on the other hand, Clinton did not lead she, on certain issues. She declined to stake out her position on the big decisions confronting the next president on climate change, including Arctic drilling, which President Obama has uh, somewhat supported, 
fracking, which he's definitely supported, oil and gas exports, and the hot-button issue for both Obama and Clinton during her time as Secretary of State, the future of the Keystone XL tar sands pipeline. Uh, Here to speak about uh, Hillary Clinton's climate policy and so much more is our old friend David Roberts. We haven't had him on for a really long time. Uh, He was the longtime writer at grist.org. He's now a writer for vox.com, focusing on politics, climate and energy. He has contributed to or been featured in The New York Times, the Boston Globe, Fast Company, Huffington Post, Outside Outside Magazine, Wired, and many others. Hey, David Roberts, sir. Welcome back to the broadcast. Hey, Brad. How's it going? Uh, It's going good. I'm really uh, happy to talk to you. It has been too long. Um, All right. uh, Hillary Clinton is uh, pledging half a billion solar panels by 2021. Uh, or the end of her first term, that's the equivalent to 25 million homes powered by solar. Sounds pretty good, does it not? Well, yes, it sounds good. <laughs> I mean, there's an element of the of the arbitrary here in the way she's chosen to present these numbers. I mean, she presents them, obviously, in a way that is designed to make them sound really big and bold, which mm-hmm. is, is, I guess, what you would expect uh, from a politician. Well, but was there a but coming at the end of that? It's a, uh, <laughs> I mean, not not a big not a big but. It's <laughs> it's a genuinely. Uh, I mean, there there are two goals. Uh, they're both pretty ambitious. The mm-hmm. one about the solar panels, as you say, is uh, that would represent a substantial acceleration in in uh, installation of solar panels. It would it would be roughly comparable to the pace Germany achieved in in uh, you know. Mm-hmm. 2008 to 2012 or so, which was this massive, massive uh, deployment of solar in Germany. So that, that was, that's an ambitious solar policy. And then the other, you know, the other um, goal is enough renewable energy to power every home in America. Again, designed to sound super huge, mm-hmm. but um, residential uh, residential energy use is only, I, I think. Um, something like 10% of total energy use in the U.S. So again, it's, it's, a, it's a little bit of a stretch goal beyond what Obama's already on track for. It, pushes, it does push things faster, but it's, but it's you know, it's, it's an incremental advance on what Obama's doing. Let's put it that way. Well, it's, it would be a 700% increase from current installations, but it sounds like what you're saying, David Roberts, is that even if we did that, even if we uh, installed half a billion uh, panels, uh, so- solar panels, it doesn't get us anywhere n- near the, uh, the emissions reductions that we actually need to do in this country? Yeah, and and let's. I mean, the the, the first thing we should say is that I think uh, Clinton is rolling out her energy and environment platform mm-hmm. in stages, and I think this was just the initial gambit, sort of the initial. I think there's more coming on. I think this is specifically renewable energy policy, and I think there's more coming on climate change policy on terms of mm-hmm. emission reduction. So I don't think we should shouldn't evaluate this as though it's the whole plan. This is specifically focused on renewable energy. One question I've been hearing people ask, and I don't know the answer to this, is why focus on solar panels in particular? I mean, I know they're very, very sexy right now. Everybody knows what they are, and they, you know, they're kind of, they, they, uh, people are passionate about them from across the 
political spectrum, but mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, the growth of renewables, you need, obviously, to worry about other forms of energy as well, and the grid, and efficiency, and all sorts of other things. So it's kind of like a, it's an, it's an attention-capturing uh, uh, headline, but it's not what you'd call a comprehensive renewable energy policy, and I don't even think it was intended to be comprehensive. I think it was just meant to be kind of a cannon shot to sort of announce that she's getting started on this particular area. And and it's odd, however, that she left so much out. I mean, I think we can be... Well, I don't know. I'd like, like your thoughts on this. Can we read something into this in the fact that she has left out so many specifics that she didn't talk about the Keystone XL pipeline? She did not rule out... Uh, you know, using federal lands for fossil fuel development, but pledges to ensure it is, quote, safe and responsible, and the taxpayers get a fair deal for it. I, I mean, is is there more coming, or is she testing the waters? And the reason I'm asking this is because, you know, when, uh, David, when she came out about, uh, you know, supporting NSA reform, uh, uh, immigration, uh, prison reform, she exceeded expectations in so many of those speeches. And what I'm reading today, since she put out a plan on Sunday and she spoke in Iowa today, um, what I'm reading is uh, people who are underwhelmed by what she had to say. Why would well, that Well, you know, this is, this is a weird area of policy in general in several ways. One is that what's really needed... Is, is so wildly beyond what our politics can currently bear that it's sort of inevitable mm-hmm. that any, you know, that any, po- that any policy announcement by any politician is going to be underwhelming to people who understand the scale of change that needs to happen. So, it, it, so it's all about, um, you know, sort of measuring it relative to, you know, the baseline or relative to expectations or relative to what's possible. And, of course, everybody makes different judgments about that. I mean, Martin O'Malley is out saying we should have 100% renewable energy for the entire economy by 2050, which is, like, in one sense better, but on the but in another sense not something that matters in the world because Martin O'Malley is never going to become president and is never going to have to make good on these promises. So I think what you see is... Hillary figure, and also the other way that this is a, an odd area of policy is that it's not really clear anymore what the sort of consensus baseline is. Like, what is the expectation? Like, back in 2008, when you know it was Hillary and, and, and Obama and Edwards all competing for the Democratic nomination, and they came out with their bold green plans back then, that was really interesting and sort of shocking and way ahead of the curve. I mean, obviously, we were measuring relative to the baseline of George W. Bush, so anything would have been better, but, it, but they were genuinely ambitious and, 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 and surprising. But now Obama's done enough and expectations have shifted enough that when I read this from Hillary, I just sort of think, well, yeah, of course, like, what else is the next Democratic president going to do but accelerate these trends that are going on. I mean, uh, to me, it wasn't really disappointing or shocking or anything, really. It's just sort of exactly the kind of policy I would expect from the next Democratic president. Now, you mentioned, by the way, uh, David Roberts, that uh, Martin O'Malley, it doesn't matter what he says. He's calling for, uh, by 2050, to get off of fossil fuel entirely. Uh, Although, you know, I would remind you 
in many in many respects, it seems like Martin O'Malley is running for vice president. And if you look at uh, Joe Biden's position, for example, on marriage equality, he got out ahead of the president and kind of forced, uh, you know, Obama to also get on board with the marriage equality. So when you got someone like O'Malley, a potential vice presidential candidate, uh, maybe it matters more than we would think. Or am I just being uh, too optimistic about, about uh, I that? I think you're stretching a little bit there. That's, okay. a, that's, a, bank, that's a bank shot. Okay. <laughs> that's a bank shot hope. Some... I mean, for one thing, the number of examples of vice presidents driving policy in any significant way is vanishingly small in the last several hundred years. Okay. And I think Martin O'Malley, I mean, Martin O'Malley's in a position right now where he can just say or promise anything. Like, he literally, his only, all he wants to do is get attention. He's desperate to pull some attention away from Hillary. So he'll, you know, he'll promise and and, and Mm -hmm. say anything at this point. Like, what Hillary is prepared to promise is a much more interesting, it reveals a lot more about the actual cross-currents of power in the Democratic Party. Like, who's really pushing for what. And there will be more, uh, you know, in terms of uh, in terms of oil production and, and fossil fuels on public lands. I think there will be more on that. There's they, they promise that there will be subsequent sort of releases dealing with these various dealing with these various areas. And the other you know, the other thing I meant to mention about why this area of policy is sort of peculiar is that it's so polarized between the parties that Hillary can say anything she wants but the fact is that the House is almost certainly going to remain in Republican hands. And as long as the House is, is in Republican hands, they are, are, are four square against any of this, any, you know, any clean energy, any efficiency, anything that restrains fossil fuels in any way. I mean, they're just the opposite in all respects. So she's not going to be able to do anything that involves ambitious legislation or any legislation really so really i mean if we're being honest with ourselves what what she's capable of doing is what the presidency can do without legislative help so executive actions the epa and in that respect the fact that the very first element in her announcement the very first thing in her plan was i'm going to defend obama's clean power plan Mm -hmm. from his epa to me, that was the most revealing thing and the most heartening thing. It shows that she realizes that that's really the game. That's that's all, you know, that's most of what the president has in his or her power is uh, defending these, these executive branch, executive agency prerogatives. And so I'm glad she's got her eyes squarely focused on that because that's going to be the big battle over the next years well, is, is pre- preserving and expanding that program well and that's what i wanted to ask you you know what is you know if what she's calling for when it comes to solar panels is not really what's needed um what what is needed what is technically well what is technically feasible uh and i guess politically feasible and then what is really needed what would you like to see from a presidential candidate of any party uh, or are you just saying, David Roberts, that, oh, well, we're kind of screwed as long as the, uh, the U.S. House remains in, in Republican hands for the next five years? Uh, yeah, that's what I'm saying. That last one. <laughs> okay. I, w- I, wish I, had, <laughs> I wish I had something more optimistic to say, but in terms of, of action at scale, you can only do that with legislation, mm-hmm. and you're not going to get legislation out of the GOP House. So... You know, I mean, this is just a structural feature of American politics right now. The House 
is gerrymandered to stay in Republican hands at least until uh, uh, 2020. Yeah, so, you 2022, know, probably. Right. The exec- so the executive branch is sort of, and you've seen this in the last several months of Obama. I mean, I think Obama finally, finally accepted that, you know, a few months ago, right. he accepted the fact that I'm never going to get any support for anything of any kind ever from the Republicans. So Correct. for the rest of my presidency, I'm just going to unapologetically and aggressively do everything I can do with the powers of my office. And you've seen him, you know, flourish mm-hmm. since he had that revelation. I mean, I mean, he's making Republicans very angry, but so what? They weren't going to help him anyway. So now he's just doing stuff, you know, on immigration, mm-hmm. on climate, on energy. He's just doing what he can do. And it's making him incredibly popular. Like you're seeing his numbers swing back up. And so this is like, this is what I want to know about Hillary, not sort of what sort of ambitious targets is she willing to, to state since, since for the most part, she won't have the power to implement them. But is she under the illusion that she needs to trim her sails in the quest for Republican support which is the illusion that hobbled Obama for the first, you know, two or, you know, several mm-hmm. years of his presidency, or does she get that her job basically is to defend what Obama's done and do everything she can do with the power of her office? And it, and there's a lot she can do if she's aggressive. The reason, you know, the reason Obama held back on that stuff is because he was hoping for Republican support. So that's what I want to know from Hillary. Does she still have these sort of bipartisan illusions, or does she realize wh- the way national politics is played these days? Do, do you get any sense, do, does the um, upcoming uh, U.N. climate treaty in Paris later this year, does, do you get any sense, does that change uh, the math here at all? In other words, if the, the United States commits uh, to a climate treaty, uh, I guess it still has to be ratified by the Senate, but can the U.S. No, make no, commitments not, it, above and beyond? It won't be. Yeah. It won't be a, a binding treaty that has to be ratified by, by the Senate uh, because <laughs> you know the the administration is well aware that they're not going to get mm-hmm. Congress to sign off on anything. So, I mean, we already know basically what Obama is going to promise in Paris. It's it's he, he's already put it out. In public, and it's you know sort of like an incremental stretch goal for what can be done with executive branch tools, you know, and 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 it's a lot. It turns out that all the things that Obama has been able to cobble together from his from his executive powers is is in the end by the end of his administration is going to amount to probably more than would have been gotten under the Waxman Markey bill that that we were fighting about over in 2009 right. so it's not to it's not to dismiss it there's a lot the president can do what i think paris is going to do is you know this is slightly a different subject but it's going to help swing the sort of international community away from this endless and fruitless quest for the ultimate treaty <laughs> that binds everyone to adequate targets which has never happened and is never going to happen and it's going to see them pivot to much more realistic sort of um, uh, specific policy goals and specific near-term commitments uh, from countries that once they are cobbled together, look like a decent head of steam. And that's going to, you know, in a sense, it's less inspiring, but it's more 
real. And you're going to start seeing, I mean, you're seeing businesses more and more do this, other countries, cities. So all around the GOP, I mean, all across the world, all around literally everywhere in the world, mm-hmm. except for the, the U.S. right mm-hmm. is on board with this. So it, sooner or later, that tide, you know, the whole world moving in one direction while you're sitting trying to halt history right. is unstable eventually. Like, eventually it's going to break, and there's going to be some sort of Republican cooperation on this stuff. But so, I don't... I've been in this long enough not to make a fool of myself by predicting when that's going to happen. So hopefully, what at, at the very least, maybe, uh, between uh, the, the treaty talks uh, with the entire planet uh, and, of course, the Pope coming to the U.S. to uh, right. speak about this in September, uh, you, your feeling, David Roberts, is the best we can do is sort of move the Overton window, perhaps. Move it away from this silly debate on, uh, you know, is climate change even real? Is the world actually getting colder? Uh, and, and over to something that at, at least debating, begin to put that debate behind us and move the debate towards, well, what the hell do we do uh, to mitigate it's, it's what a, we're It's already having. happening. You already see it happening. I mean, this is, this is the beauty of what's going on right now is renewable energy is now got ahead of steam where it's not just a sort of policy toy or a, or a symbol of anything anymore. Mm-hmm. It's a real industry. Yeah. It's cheaper than dirty energy in a lot of places. So, you, so you're seeing that has now taken on a momentum that's unstoppable. So we're no longer talking in abstractions anymore. The change that we want to see in the world is beginning mm-hmm. to happen already. So now it's just a matter of harnessing it, accelerating it, and riding it. And eventually it's going to storm over the GOP. Just like everything else the, G- the current GOP clings to, it's time limited because it's because it's you know it's all appealing to one particular disappearing demographic. But everything. Uh, from climate to immigration to to gay marriage, I mean, you name it, they're 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 going to get trampled. They're going to right. Yeah, you know what? Yeah, and you make a great point because I remember, boy, not, not uh, five or six years ago at most, being on air uh, debating with that idiot uh, uh, Mark Morano. Uh, you know, sort of pulling the strings for. Don't laugh, David. I know you know who he is. He's, he's still around. Yeah, I know he's still around. He's still denying. He's still pulling the strings for for uh, you know Rush Limbaugh and and uh, what's uh, Inhofe in, in Congress. Uh, but, you know, the point that he was trying to make with me on air was oh, solar will never take off. It's too expensive. It's a boutique energy. And you're right. History has kind of trampled guys like Mark Morano when the cost There's of... There's a lot of them out there saying it, but, it's, yeah. but it sounds tinnier and tinnier and more and more ridiculous. And, and this is what I think you'll, will yeah. happen. Once people get... Once people realize that there's this new world available this new thing available where we can where we don't have to choose between asthma and running our computers you know what i mean where right. where we can have clean and innovative energy and we're leading the world in this exciting new area once people get on board with that i think you'll see a lot of people's skepticism about climate change just vanish cuz it's never really been about the science it's always been about a fear of of change of what's going to be what we're going to be called upon to do what's going to be asked of us and once people see oh it's not like i'm not being asked to shiver in the dark i'm being asked to like 
play with this cool new technology. You know, and, well, and you're, you know what? You're gonna, all of a sudden that other argument's going to go away. Well, and and you know, I think you're being, uh, I think you're giving them too much credit when you're saying it was, you know, fear about what's next. I think I think there was no fear at all. I think the only issue was protecting the profits of a handful of uh, you know fossil fuel barons in truth and everything else came from that but yeah the the numbers uh, when it comes to guys like Murano, just you know, destroyed him. The the price of solar, you know, plummeted. People saw their neighbors getting it and hearing about. Wait, what? You're getting free energy now? What's up with? That? I want that too. And you're right. History has kind of moved on from these people to some extent. Maybe it'll move even further. Uh, let me ask you uh, very quickly because I want to get to your. Uh, uh, for some reason, a terribly controversial article uh, from a few months ago. But before I uh, get to that uh, very quickly and speak, since you mentioned bank shots and uh, power in the Democratic Party, is anybody uh, is there any difference? Is is Sanders, uh, Bernie Sanders, any better on this issue than Hillary Clinton? And even if he is at this point, given what you've said up till now, does it really not make a difference? Is it really just a matter of you know which uh, candidate is willing to say I will ignore Congress and do what needs to be done? Uh, y- y- yes, yes, uh, on, on all those questions. Yes, Bernie Sanders is better on this stuff. I mean, uh, if by better you mean willing to support more ambitious targets and policies, mm-hmm. yes, he is. I mean, he is putting out stuff that's much more ambitious than what she's putting out. But the fact is, you know, the right way to analyze power in American politics is structurally, and the president has certain powers, you know, and Congress has certain powers, and the president can only do what he has power or or she has power to do, and Bernie Sanders will be confined by those same structural constraints, or O'Malley or Clinton, anybody who gets in that position is going to be confined by the same structural constraints. There are, you know, there's there's different ways to wiggle around within them. You know, I'm not saying the president is, is powerless, but in terms of these of these grand differences between you know 100 percent versus 80 percent in 2050, like all that stuff is just outside the president's control. So, yes, the main thing the president will need is 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 cunning and savvy <laughs> to figure out how much how to get as much done as possible within those constraints and that's just that's just a very different way of assessing a candidate than how ambitious are their targets i mean so you know ambitious targets are are, are easy it's that it's that it's that cunning in figuring out how to maximize your power within the structure that's what we need out of a president and that's just it's hard to it's hard to know that in advance who's going to have that, but but honestly, like if anyone's going to, if anyone knows how to maneuver against implacably opposed Republicans, it's probably going to be Hillary Clinton. I mean, you know, well, no, it, no, nobody's been fighting those people for longer. But well, I that, mean, I don't want to speculate, but 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 either way, like Sanders is better on the uh, on the substance, but would he be would he produce better results in office? That I don't know. Well, that, that I, we don't really have. Any, no, we, yeah. we don't. But we do know that, I mean, it is left up ultimately to the president. And I've always thought this was pretty low-hanging fruit, to be frank. But it is up to the president uh, to approve the Keystone XL pipeline or not. Bernie Sanders, I believe, has said for a long time we should not be building that pipeline. And Hillary Clinton won't even uh, take a public position on it yet. Uh, color me unimpressed by that. 
Um, yeah, that's but, just it's, it's, it's mostly sim- symbolic, though. I mean, the, the issue is going to be decided by the time the next president is in office anyway in the Keystone Pipeline. I mean, God, God bless it for, 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 mm-hmm. for getting all this energy and, and, and activism focused and together. And, and to, it's helped building this movement. It's all great. But in terms of, of long-term climate and energy policy, it's just not that it's really not that important. There are so many bigger things. I mean, if, if Hillary Clinton followed through just on this one pledge she's made to, to, to boost mm-hmm. renewable energy, as much as she said, that alone would dwarf the, the carbon sure. implications uh, of Keystone either way. So I just like, Keystone is, is, is a potent symbol, but I just don't want us to forget that it's mostly a symbol. Well, exactly, which is why I called it low-hanging fruit uh, in, in truth, and that's why it seems so e- it would be so simple for her if she wants to at least pretend that she's serious about this, to come out and say no. Uh, you know, the, the James Hansen has said if we uh, tap those tar sands with the Keystone XL pipeline, it's game over, etc., etc. That seems to be an easy one, but she's hedging her bets, and there's probably a reason that we can read into that. Uh, well, yeah. I mean, I think the most obvious reason to read into that is she's a big player in Democratic politics, and Obama is still deciding what to do, and she doesn't want to get out ahead of Obama and inadvertently step on his step on his toes and cause the de- Democrats in disarray. And I mean, there's no, to me, there's not much to be gained mm. for her. Just looking at from a purely sort of cynical political perspective, there's not a lot to be gained for her from, go- from getting out ahead on this. Everybody who cares about the Keystone Pipeline is already, I mean, what else are they going to well, do? <laughs> well, David, if only to keep uh, cynical jerks like me from, you know, calling her out for this. And there's a lot of, you know, environmentalists who are not going to be happy, you know, who want her to take a, a stance. She's got to get, uh, you know, somehow to her left, or, or at least she's pretending to when it comes to uh, the challenges she's, you know, getting from Bernie Sanders. But maybe she feels that, uh, I don't know, maybe she just feels she does not need to. She's right. She is nothing if not cunning and calculating in this regard. I think she just wants to wait for Obama to make a decision. You know, I mean, that's, I mean, that would be the, to me, that's the most sensible thing, like getting out ahead of Obama on a decision. If she says, no, we shouldn't build it, and then Obama ends up building it, or vice versa, mm-hmm. it would just be a massive mess for no, <laughs> for I, no gain. I, for I, think, I think you're being, uh, uh, well, I think you're giving her a lot of uh, benefit of the doubt there. I think there's a whole bunch of other reasons to not commit to uh, Keystone as far as she's concerned politically. But I, I got just a minute or two left, uh, David Roberts, and I want to get into this because I've wanted to talk to you about this uh, since you wrote this piece and caused such a, so it caused such an uproar, at least among uh, people who follow this sort of stuff. Um, the, the, in May, you wrote, well, they were, here's the headline, The Awful Truth About Climate Change No One Wants to Admit. All right, I'll bite. What is it? And uh, then we can talk about the controversy, and we can do it all in about 30 seconds. Go. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the bad news nobody wants to admit is that we're probably not, I mean, the, the widely agreed upon goal in international climate talks is to limit temperature rise to two degrees celsius over over Mm pre-industrial levels and there's a lot of controversy over whether that's a low enough limit or whether 2c is already too high too dangerous but the fact is we're almost certainly going to blow past it like we're not doing anything 
resembling what we would need to be doing to actually hit that target. We're all still saying that's our target. Hillary's saying it. Obama's saying it. All the people at the UN, FCCC are saying it. They're all saying it. But nobody, no country anywhere is doing what it would need to do to play its role in a world that was actually going to hit 2C. So, therefore, we're probably going to shoot past 2C, and therefore, we're probably in for a lot of awful stuff. I mean, that's yep. that's... That's the bad news. I mean, and this is, you know, in terms of the controversy, it, it came down entirely to a matter of sort of affect and, and what, you know, so what your tone should be. What you're, what you're supposed to do in the environmental world is say, we can still hit this target. And it's true that, that technically, mechanically, it's still possible. It's still physically possible. But it would mean the entire world shifting basically to war footing in the next five years and remaining on war footing for the rest of the century. And that's just, that's possible, but do you see anything around you that looks like it indicates that that's going to happen? I mean, we're not doing it, so I think that it's worth at least saying, hey guys, Mm -hmm. we're headed for the shit. You know, it's probably, at this point, we're probably going to get mired in some really terrible stuff let's not wander into it without at least like having a heads up (laughs) yeah no and and this is uh, is something that has uh, amazed me yes i see no war footing it seems like we need to be on one and uh and i'm gonna i hope to talk with uh dr michael mann later this week about uh this new james hansen study which is really disturbing but i've always looked at these reports even from the uh, IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, as being incredibly optimistic. You know, A, if we hit those targets, I don't know that things are going to work out as well as they suggest they might. And B, I see no uh, evidence that we are going to hit those targets. So I do think it's going to be a lot worse than people are willing to admit. And very quickly... You got a lot of blowback on this, even from uh, folks we like. Uh, Joe Rome from Climate Progress, been on the show many times. You know, people we respect and like. Uh, they weren't happy with you. Why? Well, I think in my piece I said um, scientists are being asked to produce these scenarios that show us hitting 2C, and they're, and they're dutifully producing those scenarios because it's still possible to produce them. But... but but they're, they're sneaking in all this stuff like in the latter half of the century, we're going to have gigatons of negative emissions technology, technology that buries, that actively removes carbon from the atmosphere and, and buries it. I mean, and maybe we'll have gigatons of that stuff at the latter half of the century, but no one's invented any of it yet. Mm-hmm. You know, it's totally speculative and kind of ridiculous. And so the question is, are scientists somehow to fault for not saying more clearly what you're asking us to model mm-hmm. is ridiculous. It's not, oh, well. you know, it's not going to happen. And so are they somehow complicit in this kind of deception, this, this impression that's created that we're still on track? And I think a lot of people got mad that I sort of implied that scientists might have some role to play in this. And that's a legitimate question. Like scientists obviously you know, when policymakers ask them to do things, they do them. And the question of, like, should scientists be more, you know, alarmist or whatever you want to call it is is obviously a, a longstanding argument and 
never going to get resolved. Well, and they think they seem to think that uh, you know if we tell people what is really happening, they'll get depressed and they won't take action. Yes. I've, I've oh, yes. always find I that. I heard a lot of that. I heard a lot of that. You can't ever say anything negative, or you'll just immediately sap people's motivation to act. I think that's just like a an odd and unrealistic view of human motivation. I mean, I, if people aren't freaked out and scared, why would they do huge things? And there are huge things that need to be done. I, yeah, and I completely agree. It seems to me that, uh, you know, when, throughout my experience in, in any event at uh, Brad Blog and so forth, when I tell people how bad it is, it tends to make them want to take action rather than give up. Uh, at least that's what I found. It would be a weird reaction just to throw your hands up and say, oh, we're screwed. <laughs> yeah. Okay, that's fine. Exactly. Uh, David Roberts, great catching up with you a little bit. We've got to do this more often. Uh, David Roberts from Vox.com. If you're not already following him on the Twitters, you're just, I don't know what you're thinking. You can follow him at drvox, or as we now call him, Dr. Vox, over on Twitter. David, great talking with you, my friend. Well, let's do it again soon. Uh, definitely, Brad. Thank you, sir. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and we're back with more Bradcast right after this. I'm Brad Friedman. Stay tuned. Maybe it is. Uh, welcome back to the Bradcast. It's the end of the broadcast as we know it for today. Anyway, I uh, got one more story for you here. My thanks again to David Roberts of Vox.com. And uh, speaking of the end of the world, we will, I mentioned, uh, be talking with uh, Dr. Michael Mann later this week. This this report from James Hansen, who was right, what, Desi Doyen, uh, 35 years ago when he uh, predicted pretty much everything that is now happening when it comes to yeah, global Yeah, for the warming. most part, yeah. all of his predictions have come true, all of his calculations that he made 35 years ago. Right. And that was James Hansen was the lead scientist for Na for NASA until he's uh, just recently stopped uh, so that he can get the word out, so he can be more of an activist, I guess, about what's uh, really going on and what this country, what this world, I should say, need to do at this point about global warming. So we're going to talk to Michael Mann about that alarming new study, which says things are way worse, way worse than uh, the scientific consensus has reported so far. And uh, we may be looking at uh, 10 meters of sea, uh, 10 feet, I should say, of sea level rise as early as, what do you say, 10 years away? No, 50, uh, 50 years. 50 years away, according to this study. Right, and that's basically so. what David Roberts was also saying, is that there is a huge amount of work to be done, and we are not doing it. Imagine that, us not doing the job that needs to be done. And by us, I mean U.S. All right, uh, before we go, uh, Ernie Canning, our uh, legal analyst over at bradblog.com, wrote a very short piece, uh, but you need to know about it. The uh, U.S. House of Representatives last week passed what they call the Safe and Accurate Food Act. <laughs> You'll be shocked to learn it's not about safe and accurate food. Uh, this passed by 275 to 150 in the U.S. House, including the support from 45 Democrats. Basically, this act, if, it's, uh, if it passes in the Senate, is, if it's signed by the president, would prevent state and local governments from mandating the labeling of genetically 
engineered food, GMOs. It has been described alternately as the Deny Americans the Right to Know Act or the Dark Act, keep them in the dark, uh, as well as the Monsanto Protection Act. So there's at least 275 elected members of your U.S. House who want to override local control. Remember, these are Republicans who love to pretend they're in favor of small government, they're in favor of democracy, they're in in favor of local control. They want to make it so that it is illegal for state or local governments to mandate that genetically altered foods are labeled as such. That's it. The label that, you know, doesn't have to say a GM, this is a GMO food, it's terrible, it's poison, uh, don't eat it. No, all they have to do is say this food is uh, has been uh, genetically engineered. They are against that. They want to make that illegal. That on the heels of a new study that finds uh, the accumulation of formaldehyde, a known carcinogen, and a dramatic depletion of glut- glut- glutathione. That's it. Glutathione, an antioxidant necessary for cellular detoxification uh, in GMO soy indicating that formaldehyde and glutathione are likely critical criteria for distinguishing the GMO from its non-GMO counterpart. In other words, this new study uh, uses a new technique, a new biological method to integrate about uh, 6,500 lab experiments from 184 scientific institutions across 23 countries to say, oh, wait a minute, GMO soy is not identical to its non-GMO counterparts, as the argument is made by corporations like Monsanto and others who make billions off of this uh, genetically modified food. The uh, the, the scientists who uh, released this study are also uh, critical of the outdated and un, uh, outdated uh, testing methods currently used by the government, which they say were assessed. Uh, for for assessing safety of medical devices in the 1970s. That's the type of test that they are using here, not an appropriate test, these scientists say. You can read more all about it at bradblog.com, where Ernie Canning has, uh, has written this article to let you know, while everyone else is distracted by the shiny objects that are, you know, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, there's actual stuff going on that actually affects you and your lives right now. So check that out. My thanks to Desi Doyen, our producer, to Cynthia Cohn, our booking goddess, and to David Roberts of Vox.com. Thank you for joining us. If you missed any portion of today's program, you can, as always, download it at bradblog.com. Please follow us on the Twitters and the Facebooks at The Bradblog. And we will be back with you. Same Brad time, same Brad channel tomorrow. Until then, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.